All right, hello everybody. I just want to start by saying that uh, I was just reflecting on things before this one today and realizing that at least for me, life is pretty hard if you look carefully, if you go through it every day. Life is so hard and even when things are good and when things are bad, of course, they're terrible. But, you know, you start out with that, you know, I don't know who constructed things this way, but it is difficult um, if, you're, if you have any emotional sensitivity. So a week ago, a week ago, literally today, think of what time it is, literally this, mom this moment, a week ago, I was in Seattle at a meeting with um, people honoring Marsha Linehan. Uh, as she f phases into a different phase. Um, she's being made, you know, like a, a professor emeritus, and people got together to, uh, to honor her career, her contributions, etc. So first there was this reception of about 80 people. And then after that, there was a two talks in the evening uh, where there were about 800 people. And during the, the, you would think, and I was staying in Seattle area with my sister, who I dearly love. And so you would think, wow, what a great event. How wonderful. But um, the fact is, it wasn't um, always so wonderful. So I was reflecting back on that because of the skills that I'm teaching in the middle of teaching right now and how badly we need them. Because here's what happened. I go to this 80-person invitation-only event. And the first thing that happens is I go in, and there's a name tag for me, and I'm on the invitation list. And there's people I know who are equally deserving as me with their connection to Linehan that are not on that list, and they're being kept out of the room. So right away, I just thought, uh, I made this judgment the judgment came into my mind. And the judgment that came into my mind was, oh, look, I was invited. I'm an insider here, and these guys are outsiders. And then my next thought was feeling bad that I thought that and realizing that probably just some kind of screw up happened. And I didn't know what happened. I mean, you didn't know what happened, but I just jumped to that. So then I go in, actually what I did was I went in and got wine for all of the people that were being kept out. And then we were sort of sneaking wine to everybody, like glasses of wine. There were not just me, but two other people too. <laughs> it was kind of fun, actually. And, um, and then they eventually got in. It was, had to do with a fire code or something. Then we're in there. Now, this should be fun, right? Wrong. There's so many people there that I know from the past, from working with, teaching with. I know their, their work from... The things I've read, Marsha Linehan's there, other people from her family are there. And it's like, I'm not good with these kind of events inside myself. I always am torn in 14 different directions and thinking, oh no, if I'm talking to this one, I'm not talking to that one. It's, it's very hard to be present for me in these situations because of just kind of like, am I talking to who I want to be talking to? And what, and now I'm with this group and how long is this going to go on? And there's that person I haven't seen for three years that I was dying to see. And she's now gone talking to someone else. And now it's all, you know, so I am just regulating my emotions while I try to stay focused in. Then another thing happens, by the way, those of you who are tuning into the zoom cast and seeing me, I'm in a weird position because I'm having back pain. So uh, it isn't that I'm just sort of like I'm, I'm drunk and hanging out at the end of a day, you know, lying here on a couch. I'm actually working. But I, 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 even today during therapy, I was seeing my clients while lying down on a couch. Um, so then I get into this thing where they have a formal part. And people are up there. People were invited to talk, give five minutes of a reminiscence with Marsha Linehan. And then it turns out there's a whole bunch of people doing that. And then I notice I wasn't asked to do that. And then I'm caught in that. Then I'm thinking, why wasn't I asked to do that? And uh, I should have been asked to do that. And who arranged this anyway? 
and I start to have my mind gets into some judgments and here and there. I'm not saying any of this, this is rocket science. I mean, everybody goes through these kind of things, I think. Um, and it certainly isn't like major league crises. I'm just saying this is daily life. Like just to get caught in these little swirls. And then I'm in the swirl of I should have been invited and then I'm not invited. And then I'm thinking, well, screw them. I mean, and then I have to sort of notice that, observe that, describe that, and come back to reality. And reality is, I don't know what happened. Um, and so there was, that, there was that one. And then there was uh, other things that came up like that. So I just want to make the first point in telling this little story that you just hardly go through a day or a meeting. And even things that are supposed to be good, like vacations or something, where you don't have to cope, you don't have to regulate your emotions and your judgments and your thoughts and your interpretations and your false assumptions and all kinds of things. It just makes life, like, unfortunately, harder than you think it should be. Second thing. So I'm having this pain starting about a month ago. And it's not a big pain. It's like no bigger than other pains when you get to be 70 years old. So I just think, well, there's another pain. Right. And so and then it's sort of I figure it'll go away. Actually, I've had hip surgery. I've had back surgery before. I know what these different things feel like. But then about a week ago, it wasn't going away and it was getting worse. And then it was getting worse, worse. And, and next Monday, I have to travel to Italy to do teaching and intensive DBT training and, and some stuff like that. And I think, oh, no, and I'm going to have to get an airplane. And I'm back here. But I'm but I have my my roster is filled in my schedule because I've been gone for a few days and now I'm, I'm going to be gone again. So it's like the pressure builds. And then my usual go-to position for things like this is to deny that it's actually that bad and to just think, oh, well, I'll just take a pharmacopoeia, uh, everything I have for anti-inflammatories and things like that. I'll take it with me and I'll just sort of suffer through it and then it'll be gone. I mean, things don't stay forever, right? And then I start thinking, actually, I can't tell whether this is back-related back pain or whether this is down in my kidney because it's in that area. It was in my flank of my body where the kidney is. And I thought, this could be internal stuff too. Oh, damn. And so I get caught in a swirl of, I don't really want to go see a doctor. I don't trust doctors anyway, for the most part. I mean, being one myself, I trust, I trust me in trying to do things. But I also know people don't know everything and, and that I've been to doctors who've made mistakes before. So I thought, I don't want to go see a doctor. Actually, my doctor is a nurse practitioner just because she's the best person I liked of anybody I've seen so far. And so, um, and then I just had to sort of stop and I'm getting ready for this podcast about the course mindfulness skills and think, just observe reality. What's the reality? The reality is I have pain. The reality is, I don't know where it's coming from. The reality is, I don't want to catastrophize, but it could be something bad. Um, and then try to describe what I'm observing and try to make sense of it. And describing, as I'll say more about, helps differentiate what we observe from what we assume is going on or what we judge is going on. So then I'm using describe, and then I'm getting down to, you know what? What is the reasonable thing to do here? Reasonable mind emotion mind, wise mind, what is the wise mind thing to do, given what I'm observing and describing, and given how the world works, and given that I'm going away on Monday, you know what, the wise mind thing is to call my doctor. You know, to, any, to, to many people in the world, of course, that would have been the, what they did instinctively. But you know, I have to deal with this whole brain that's filled with these other things that are going on about it, and thinking I'm not going to go. And then I decide to go, and then I go, and it's very reassuring. She goes over a physical exam, and she says, I think it's this. I think, it's, I think you've got some pinched nerve coming out of your spine, and that explains it, and we should get an MRI. So then I'm getting an MRI, actually, tomorrow night. Um, so just another example of how we just are always bumping into the slings and arrows of daily life of various kinds, small and large, and they call for observing and describing. Because observing and describing, as I'll say more about, are really our fundamental human capacities to be able to read reality. We want to start with the facts. We want to start with reality, start with the truth of what we are experiencing, and go from there. And so often we bypass 
the fundamental, just sort of like, oh, well, that's what's happening. Um, yeah, I had another example. I was supervising a team in DBT this week, and they were talking to me about a 20-year-old, it was an outpatient team, and uh, I'll disguise enough that nobody could identify this except maybe the actual team themselves, in which case they'll remain confidential. But, you know, they were talking about a 20-year-old woman whose chronic position in life is to avoid her feelings, to suppress her feelings, to react to her feelings as if they are alien things that lead her to feel suicidal, that lead her to harm herself that lead her to restrict her eating and to overly excessively exercise because it numbs out her feelings. She has a whole mm, infrastructure inside herself for coping with feelings. And they mostly have to do with avoidance and restriction and control. And so that, that, that works fine as long as it works. The problem is it often doesn't work because she has a very stressful life. And so she had an event coming up and the therapist wanted help in figuring out what to do because the event was that she was going to go to another state and she was going to go to a social event where it was predictable that it would be incredibly stressful for her. It had to do with a previous relationship and the person was going to be there and it was going to be very painful. And so what she was saying was, you know, it's going to be fine. I'll be fine. You know, I can handle these kind of things. And in fact, the record showed that she usually wasn't so great at handling these kind of things if you measure it in hospitalizations, measure it in suicide uh, feelings and, and behaviors. So the therapist was uh, really anxious about this is coming up next week and she's going to, what should I do? How can I get her to commit to not go? And I said, well, does she not, does she want to, does she partly not want to go? Is she ambivalent about going? Well, no, she just wants to go and she plans to go. Okay, so getting someone to commit is tough. I mean, if they're not committed at all and it's coming up and they're not even ambivalent about it and you're on the other side of the fence, right? Right, so what should I do? So I wanna make two points about this related to teaching, leading into today's teaching. One, the client, it's a perfect example of how if, when you grow up, and she grew up with an intensely sensitive nervous system, and she grew up in a very invalidating family environment, repeatedly and pervasively, and she grew up figuring out how to bypass or suppress or crush or deny her emotions, which she couldn't tolerate. She didn't know how to tolerate. And what are the first skills for tolerating them? Observing your emotions observing how they affect your mind and your body, observing what kind of thoughts you have when you have these emotions and observing, you know, all the sensations. Um, and so she couldn't do that. She literally couldn't do that. So what do you do if you're living as a human being who, whose chronic adaptation to life has been to not be able to observe or describe accurately your emotions? It just puts you really up the creek without a paddle without what I would call the most fundamental capacities of being a human being and regulating yourself, not just within DBT. So, so it's a good example of how that is. And then the therapist is another good example of something. The therapist can observe feelings, can describe feelings, and I think pretty accurately could guess what some of the feelings might be if the patient felt them, though the patient wasn't feeling them or claiming not to feel them. And so, but here's the problem with what the therapist was doing. The therapist got caught up in thinking that what she wanted to happen should happen. So what she wanted to happen was that the patient not go. Um, but, it, but at a certain point I said, let me ask you something. Is there a chance in hell that this patient isn't gonna go? She said, no, I think she's gonna go. I said, but you've spent all this time with me so far making it sound like you should figure out how to get her not to go. Yeah, I wish she wouldn't go. I said, yeah, well, I wish I was six, eight, you know, but I'm not, you know, I, I wish my parents were alive and they're not, you know, I wish my best friend from 10, 20 years ago was alive and she's not. So what do you mean? You, you wish it was true, but it's not. But look at, I want you to step back from what you wish were true because that is a cloud covering the sky. In the sky, 
if you could see the sky, you would see this patient is going. So that's going to change your game plan if you knew that. So I just, it's just another thing of how normal it is for a highly skilled, and I guarantee you this therapist was a highly competent person and a highly competent therapist, but got caught up in, a, in what was kind of like a cloud that was obscuring the sun. So I've never done this podcast this way, but now <laughs> I'm imitating people who really do podcasts. And what they do is like they start with something like this, and then they say, this is the podcast, because I haven't announced it. So I'm going to do it now. This is the podcast to hell I'm back with Charlie. <laughs> and I'm in Massachusetts, and it's 6 o'clock. Well, it's past that now. It's 6.15 uh, Eastern Standard Time on D-Day, June 6, uh, 2019, 75 years after the invasion of Normandy. And so um, I'm very happy to be doing this. I didn't do one last week because I was in Seattle. Um, and I won't be doing one next week. I'll be in Italy. Um, but we're, we're covering skills. And right now we're covering mindfulness skills. And in the last podcast or Zoomcast, whatever you call it, uh, I did, it was cut short because we had technical troubles getting going. Uh, but we spent the time on observing. And so just quick review, not because I think you need a deep review, but because all these things hang together. The six mindfulness skills, each of them has within it the other five. And the six mindfulness skills are like an orchestra that travels together. And any one of them is helpful and valuable and is a pathway towards wise mind. But it's the collection of all six together that really um, make you more skillful from the ground up. And so I want to go over the six and help you see why that's true. Um, so look at a couple notes. And by the way, if anybody who's live here watching at some point has a question, feel free to write it into the chat box. And I may get to it or may not, depending on timing, but I will try to get to, the, to any questions. Um, okay. So I've sort of made my main first point, which is that to be, uh, that, that to, to cope with the fundamental problems of being a human being, these six skills are fundamental skills. They are fundamental tools. They are basically human capacities. And they, they are identifiable out of Marshall Linehan taking Zen Buddhist meditation and really getting to know it well and practicing it and finding that it's the best antidote to suffering in the world from her point of view, or at least Buddhism in general. And then breaking them down into bite-sized skills. And I think that what you can see, and I'm going to go through it this way, is that uh, these, these bite-sized skills, if you see where they come from in meditation, because we, we're going to move from meditation during these, this next period of time in this, seeing that these six skills all come up regularly for meditators. But then how do you, uh, what would you call it, just export them out into the rest of us as just fundamental human capacities that everybody could have. And some people are using them more than others. And it's a very skillful thing to do. Why? Because they actually are the way of uh, accessing the real data of life. They're like your data gatherers and purifiers. If, and you'll see what I mean. Observing and describing and participate help you gather data about reality. Non-judgmental and one mindfully and effectively are three different ways to help you decontaminate the data, if I want to stick with that metaphor. And all in all, I was thinking just yesterday that really what these things are, since nobody knows you're using them when you're using them, unless you tell somebody, they're just silent, invisible things you do. I sort of think of them as secret weapons to being a more effective human being. They really are like secret weapons, which is a helpful reframe because a lot of people who are taught these skills think that these are wimpy skills. You know, we're just observing, a big deal. We always observe, right? We're just describing, oh, great, big deal. I should waste my time learning to describe or participate. I participate all the time. So 
there's a way in which these skills get dismissed as uh, trivial or either too deep or too shallow. So I want to make an argument and reframe them and say, no, these are your most powerful secret weapon. These are like when you go to the gym and somebody says, you know, we should start by building your core muscles, the ones that no one can see that are around your abdomen and your back and that are down inside. But actually, if you have strong core muscles, everything else goes better. And I really think that's the, what the mindfulness skills are, are, are doing. So when mindfulness meditators meditate, what are they doing? First of all, they are using the human capacity of observing uh, as much as they can. They're observing, you sit or you walk or you eat or you do whatever you do. And while you do that, you observe external reality with your five senses. You smell it, taste it, touch it, hear it, um, feel it, uh, look at it. I mean, all, you, you basically are taking in external reality. That's how the nervous system is built. Everything we learn that goes on outside of our skin comes in through those five specialized modalities, right? And then we've got this capacity inside ourselves, which is amazing, to sense what's going on in ourselves. One of the most amazing things I think about sometimes is that you even can sense, like somebody says, hey, let's go for a walk into town, and it's a half a mile walk. And you know if you can make it or not before you go. You know if you have the energy. You actually have some complex capacity to sense your energy budget. Now, you might stretch that budget, and you might make it, but we can sense all kinds of things. We certainly sense our own thoughts. We sense our emotions. We sense our body sensations inside. We sense our balance, and we sense, like I say, our energy budget. So there's a lot of things we can just sense. Um, so we observe what's outside ourselves with one set of specialized sensory modalities called sense, uh, five senses. And we observe what's inside ourselves by these specialized capacities to sense things inside ourselves. And these things all go to the same strip in the brain, actually. It's in the parietal lobe of the brain, and it's called the somatosensory strip to people who study the brain. And it's, it really is where everything goes. And then you've got, you might say, the data on which to function. So if you don't get the data, you're functioning on incomplete data. You're like a blind person who's crossing an obstacle course. And the obstacle course, like this 20-year-old person who's going to go out to another state to an obviously stressful event, but she doesn't think she has any feelings about it, she's going to encounter some feelings that she's blind to. And of course, that's going to do her in, most likely, unless she just lucks out. So observing is what you're doing when you sit and meditate. And either you're just observing everything that comes by in what you might call open field mindfulness, where you just sort of set your mind up as an observer through all these sensory devices. And then you just sense and you just follow what comes. And that can be very helpful. It can be very grounding. It can bring you in touch with reality. And at the same time, your mind will compete with that by generating other pathways. All right. And then there's something we're more likely to use when we teach DBT skills, which are focused mindfulness. Not open field mindfulness, but focusing and concentrating on a certain thing. We're focusing on the breath. We're focusing on what we're eating. We're focusing on a conversation. We're focusing on the sounds in the room. We're focusing on whatever it is, but the idea is we're focusing on something. So observing is a very big deal, and we don't necessarily do observing when we just take stuff in. I mean, to observe is actually to almost underline the capacity to observe, like to pay attention. And so the next point I want to make is that whatever skills we're talking about here, the way the mindfulness skills work, they rely heavily on the capacity to attend and the capacity to shift attention. So one of the things that, that, that is a limiting factor, if you have trouble attending, like let's say you have a significant version of attention deficit disorder, or let's say you're intoxicated all of the time and you really can't pay attention, or you've got some cognitive deficits you can't pay attention. All of these things will interfere with being able to perceive and take in reality, which then has further complications. So attending is a big muscle, and one of the values of practicing meditation or practicing mindfulness of different kinds is that over time, hopefully, it will strengthen your capacity to pay attention.
And when it does, you know, it'll quietly, broadly affect your whole life. Um, somebody put something in the chat. So if it's about this, let me just see from Catherine. For someone who can use the skills with objects, but personally is extremely numb toward feelings and can't access feelings with mindfulness skills, how would you suggest beginning to access feelings with mindfulness practice? You know, it's very, um, that's a great question, Catherine. Um, it actually came up in my consultation about this 20-year-old person who doesn't really sense much in her own body. She just over-controls everything and she runs her life by trying to be thin and trying to exercise excessively and trying to tire herself out and not to have too many feelings. So, you know, what I, I, I think you have to realistically, if somebody's really that blocked about that, you have to accept that they're blocked like that. You have to orient them to the fact that they're blocked like that and, and explain the problem in a way that's sympathetic and in a way that is uh, understandable. Sometimes I use diagrams to show something. You know, I don't know what I would use for the person. It would depend on the situation. But I think you have to start in a bite-sized way and orient people and, and yet not um, dumb things down in a way that makes them feel that you're condescending to them and also reinforces every time they have an emotion. I suggested, for instance, to this therapist that she just say things like, and this is kind of obvious and straightforward, but I think to do it over and over again can make a difference over time. You chip away at this problem. But I think you, you, know, you can say, oh my God, you're going to that state. I'm just imagining. I mean, I know you don't feel this way, but if I were in your skin and I went to that, I would be terrified of how I'm gonna feel when I see my old such and such. Because when I see her, I'm gonna be really upset probably. And I, so I don't know, if I were you, maybe I'd go on an 11 mile run just before I see her and just after I see her. Or maybe I'll just eat nothing for three days so that I don't feel very much or whatever it is. But you know what I wish, I would, what I wish you could get to would be to actually realize that it's a natural human thing to be upset about this person. So it doesn't catch you by surprise and suddenly you become suicidal. So, I mean, it, I think it's just through repeated dialogues. And also I suggested that sometimes you can just carve out a 30 second focus in a session and do it every session and pick something that the person might have some feelings about and do a little exposure practice and see if they can feel something today. You know, like maybe the person doesn't like to be told what to do. So you tell them that every session at some point at your choosing, you're going to tell them to do something. And you know they have feelings about that, and you want them to just sit back and realize they're being told what to do. They don't like that. And then to say something about it. You know, let's just, let's just practice it every day. It's sort of like, how do you learn to skate on ice? You practice a little bit, and you fall down. And you also have to be accepted for the fact that you're falling down. I mean, so I, I, I could go on and on about that, but I do want to get to other things. But I, I could come back if, uh, if it seems like a good idea. Um, okay, so I was talking about observing and attention. Now, let me move on to describing. Because a lot of meditation practice, sitting on a cushion, sitting on you know, a chair, taking a walk and meditating, whatever you're doing and meditating, a lot of it is describing. And you are, just as it's taught in DBT, you're describing what you're observing. So that you're doing, I mean, the very first uh, breath exercise written about by the Buddha was to breathe in and breathe out. And while you're breathing in, say in your mind, I'm breathing in. And while you're breathing out, you say, I'm breathing out. And that's, you know, that's about the first sort of simple step, but in a way that's the most simple and the most complex step. It is the whole ball of wax. The idea is that you observe exactly, I mean, you describe exactly what you're observing with language that is as spare and descriptive as possible. No extra ra razzmatazz, no paragraphs, not even complete sentences usually. The person who says, oh, I'm really nervous today. And you say, well, can you describe what you're noticing that led you to that conclusion? Yeah, well, my heart's beating really fast. Okay, anything else? Yeah, I feel sweaty. My palms are sweaty, I mean, today. Well, anything else? Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking things are going to go bad today. 
Okay, you're observing your thoughts. Right, okay, so you're observing your heart, you're observing your hands, you're observing your, your thoughts. I mean, that's really great. I'm, you're really grounding yourself and that's exactly what it is. And if you start having that conversation, usually a person will now divulge more because now they get the idea of what you're talking about. You're translating this global term like I'm really nervous or I'm really upset or even I'm anxious or I'm traumatized, all of which are terms that are used for a wide range of things. And you say, can you describe what you're observing? that leads you to that conclusion. And then they get into that. And the more you describe, the more you are helping them come into contact with reality, the actual reality, rather than come into contact with previous meanings, previous judgments, previous assumptions and assessments. Because people get taught that they feel a certain way. So you really want to get down to, is that, a, is that the microscopic description that you can expect? So, you know, when you meditate, you may be walking slowly and you're noticing all the sensations on the bottom of your foot, and you're noticing your legs moving and your heel and your toe. You're noticing how your body moves above your legs as you're walking. Whatever you're focusing on, you're just observing. But then you might also be describing, just describing step, step, heel, toes, heel, toes, or some you might describe the relationship between the pace of your breath and the pace of your steps. Breathing in, I take one step. Breathing out, I take one step. And this hour, take a step one, step two, step. Anything like that that pairs an experience you're observing with something you do with language, because language is such an important thing for lots of reasons. Here's what I find it does for me in meditating, but also in just normal and adverse life situations. If I can just sort of say what I'm observing, it accentuates it. It sort of like underlines it. It grounds me. It anchors me in that experience. So one day, a couple weeks ago, I was getting up in the morning. I didn't feel well. And as I was getting up, I knew I had to go to work but I didn't feel like it. And I got up and I sat on the side of my bed. I thought, damn, I have to put my shoes on now. I have to pull my socks on and put my shoes on. And I didn't want to. And I felt like I was sort of in a fog and fighting my way through a fog and think, ah, maybe I shouldn't go. No, I'm going. And so then it helped me, strangely enough, because it's such a simple thing, to just say, I'm putting on my shoes. And I pulled one shoe on and said, there goes my left one. And I'm, now I'm tying it. There goes my right one. Now I'm tying it. Just that accentuates what you're observing and it anchors you in reality. And it sometimes can help the fog lift just a little bit and can help you tolerate what you're doing. There's another very important thing that describing does. You observe something and that's like a trigger. And it immediately sets off other associations. It sets off assumptions, interpretations, judgments, past memories, future worries. I mean, it's just natural. It's the way the brain works. The brain is just constantly associating whatever input it's getting with other stuff in there. And so it, you, you often are besieged with not realizing that you've just observed you know, a sound but you've observed a sound that made you think, oh my God, there's someone breaking into my house. Now what you're reacting to is, oh my God, there's someone breaking into my house. You're having a catastrophic thought. And it might be if you just sat and listened carefully, actually that sound was not the kind of sound that somebody would break into your house, but you do have fears about that. So all of a sudden you're caught up in a whirlwind or a cloud or a fog or a haze or a storm. You're caught up in something um, and if you can observe, if you can sort of settle down by just observing and then describing what you observe, you sometimes clarify the difference between reality and the real data and what you're jumping to in your mind, what your assumptions are, what your fears are, what your catastrophe. Now, maybe you're right. Maybe you should be jumping to that and maybe you should act quickly. But most of the time, I'm talking about things that just cross your mind you know, like I was having a conversation with my brother when, when I was out in Seattle. I also got to see two out of my three brothers as well as my sister. 
and we're having a conversation. And this other brother didn't come to join us for something. And I said, don't you think it was kind of mean that so-and-so didn't join us? Now, up to that moment, it was just observing and describing. Yes, we both knew he didn't come. Yes, I could describe he didn't come. Yes, there's consensual agreement on that. But then when I said, I just slid from there, unthinkingly, I slid into a judgment about my brother. And unfortunately, in a way, I realized afterwards, my other brother said, yeah, you're right. That was mean. Whereas actually, I don't know if it was mean. When I stop and actually get into wise mind, I think, all right, there could be about 4,000 reasons why he didn't show up. And so that, that, that really got me out of wise mind to jump to that. So sometimes when you describe, it is the moment that you discriminate between a judgment and an assumption and an interpretation versus concrete reality. Because when you describe in the barest bones way, you're just describing what you've observed as concrete reality. And so it helps anchor you in what is real rather than all of these other competing forces that are flying through the mind. So describing is an unbelievably valuable skill to have. And we need it like every other hour, at least, um, to do that. And I think most of us use these things automatically most of the time, but we also slide in without knowing. Now, here's a skill I wish we had, and it's really hard to teach, and it comes up in a lot of therapies. It comes up when you watch yourself carefully. How do you recognize when you've slid out of reality? Like you've been processing the data of reality through observing and describing in the bare bones descriptive way that helps anchor you in what is both the current reality and in a sense, the ultimate reality. And it's very good to be there with decision-making. It's good to be there because it can generate like things that are appropriate to what's going on. Um, but how do you know when you slide out of that? Because usually you slide out of that without knowing it. And so you're often saying in therapy things like, um, gee, if only, you, if only you could catch yourself when you start to think that way, when you start to make assumptions about other people. When you, when, well, I've talked about this one girl before. When this high school girl who's standing by her locker and has a crush on a boy and at the end of the day, when he's walking past her locker, she doesn't look at him and he doesn't look at her and not, not, no words are exchanged. And she wants to cut herself because she's so devastated. Why is she devastated? Because she slid instantly into an assumption and the assumption was he ignored me. Now, ignored me is different than he walked by me. He ignored me. He actively ignored me. And not only that, of course he ignored me because I'm the kind of person you would want to ignore. And not only that, I'm pathetic and there will never be anybody for me. All of this happened within like half a minute. And then she carried that into the rest of her day and her evening, all based on lack of facts. I tried to challenge her interpretation of facts, but it was very hard. She didn't accept any of it. I said, I used to be a high school boy and I can guarantee you, you don't have any idea what he was thinking because he walked by. You just don't know. I mean, they're hard to read. Um, so, she, but she, she said, no, I know, I know, I know. So we get caught in these things and it's, it is, a, it'd be skill number seven of mindfulness skills. It actually would be an adaptation of observing and describing. To observe and describe the moment when you lost contact with reality. And usually we only figure that out later, including in my life now. I mean, I get caught in something and then later I say, oh, that was not true. Or how would I know that? And, but at the moment you get caught in it. So that's observing and describing. Um, and they are the two skills in the entire manual for uh, collecting the data and, and monitoring the data and validating the data. Describing validates the data. It says, I am doing this. And you either, and then when you say it, you sometimes say, no, I'm not, or no, that's not true. So these two skills together are such a powerful duo because as soon as you get to the third one, it's a different kind of skill. Okay. Participate. So you get to participate. It's another mindfulness skill. And why are the, these three linked together? Linehan calls all of them the what skills, W-H-A-T. 
Well, she calls them all because they're, they do belong together because they are three different ways you relate to your experience. If you have an experience of walking, you can observe the sensations of walking. You can describe the experience of walking or, and you can participate in walking, which basically means, as participate always means, that you immerse yourself in the experience of walking. Notice, for instance, I'm not sure I've ever heard somebody teach this before. It just occurred to me while I was preparing for this, that observe and describe are transitive verbs. And participate is an intransitive verb. What do I mean? To observe and describe, you observe something. You describe something. In other words, there's observe over here, and there's something over here. And there's a boundary between the two. I'm observing my food. I'm observing those of you on the screen. I'm observing my, the sound of my own voice. All of these are, there's something I'm observing. It's as if you could imagine there's a bubble in front of you like the size of a bowling ball. I sort of sometimes picture this and you are able to observe your experience which is getting channeled through that bubble like a crystal ball. And then describing is also a transitive verb that has an object. You describe something. So again, there's a boundary between the subject and the predicate, subject and the object here, which is I describe my breathing, okay? So I have a describer and then I have what is described. And I don't wanna overstate the value of thinking of it this way, but I do think that that is the nature of these two skills and they're closely related to each other. You're not, you shouldn't be describing things that you can't observe. You're going beyond the boundaries of describe. But what's participate? You don't participate something. Participate's an intransitive verb. It doesn't take a direct object. It takes a preposition, prepositional phrase. So you participate in something. And if you look up in the Oxford English Dictionary, what are the roots of the word participate? It has to do with to take part or to share in. These are two different roots that come together in this word. You take part in something. And, you, and the idea in this skill, in this human capacity, is that you can 100% take part in. You can 100% join in. And there is not a boundary between you and the experience the way there is with the other two. You are entering into that bubble. You're seeing the world from that bubble. You're joining the membrane of that bubble. The boundary between you has dissolved. If you are observing dancing, if you are describing dancing, it's very different than participating in dancing. In, in DBT's way of using the term participate, it's that human capacity where you are 100% dancing. And why does that help you get to wise mind? Whatever it is you're doing. Because you let go and you fully engage. And when you fully engage, you also engage your mind in a very lively way that allows it to divulge things that are ordinarily kept separate, ordinarily kept underground. So you're, 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 you have a certain judgmental view. Like I have people sing at my workshops, you know, and we do it as a participate mindfulness practice. And the idea of it is, can you get inside the singing so that the song and you and the people you're singing with are all one? And when they're all one, it's just a different experience than if you're keeping yourself outside of it because you're anxious about singing, you're inhibiting yourself because you don't like the sound of your voice or you think you'll sound bad or, th or you're judgmental about singing. It requires actually getting into singing in, in, in an entire way. Where could this be skillful in your life? Well, several weekends ago, my wife and I had, I mean, all my family had some relatives from her side of the family that we almost never see. And they were here. It was a, a grandma, a ma, and a, it was three generations of women and, and, and a four-year-old. And so there they were. And my wife, after about one day of the two and a half days, said, gee, you're not really into this, Charlie. So what do you mean? I've done this. I've done this. I got defensive. I got immediately. I mean, I just didn't want to hear this. I, I thought, yeah, but you remember like when, when your sister and brother showed up as a surprise for your party, when you had a birthday party, and, and I arranged that, like, you totally participated in that. And my wife doesn't know DBT. She knows of DBT. So she wasn't using it as a skill. She's just using it as a normal person. <laughs> 
there are DBT people and there's normal people. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I said, yeah, but I'm, I'm trying. She said, yeah, but, but it's, there's a big difference when you're totally present and you're doing it. And I, I, I really was in a defensive posture for about an hour and I just got away from it. And I just sat and I thought, you know, she's actually right. I mean, if I were to observe the data and describe the data and strip away the defensiveness and the judgment, I'd say, that's actually true. I am kind of holding back. I feel a little tired, but also I don't feel like doing some of these things with them. Um, and then I thought, there is a big difference between fully participating and holding back. And it's interesting what happened. Like on a dime, and I got credit for this later, believe me. Like on a dime, I was totally there. I mean, and I thought of things to do, and I thought of things to pick up after, and I thought of things to do with the four-year-old, because I wasn't relating that much to her. And I was like inside the bubble with everybody. And, it, and not only was it noticeable and more helpful, and they were grateful, and they, they said, boy, both of you were so involved with us, we so appreciate it. But not only that, I enjoyed it. I actually, it was, it's, it's the underlying capacity for the skill in DBT of willingness, is to be willing rather than willful. I was being partially willful, not so obviously willful that I immediately took to that idea, but in fact, it was true. I was being sort of like 60% willful, but I was making myself look better than that. But my wife knew, you know, you know, husbands and wives and partners know these things about each other. And so I was able to do that. Like that's participate. It's valuable. It, it helps you see the world more clearly. It helps you come up creatively with things that were not in you before, or they were in you, but they weren't discovered. Some things only discover, are discoverable through action, through full participation, through dancing, through singing, through reading, through having an intense conversation where you're entirely inside the bubble. So that's what I mean by the skill of participate. And it goes in a different way to get you to wise mind. It sort of helps you get down there through pure engagement. And the other help you get there by getting accurate data and reading it accurately and then settling into reasonable versus emotional mind and finding your way down to wise mind. Non-judgmentally is the next skill that comes up and it comes up for meditators, right? But here's where there's a sharp line I wanna draw for you, maybe sharper than is needed, but I don't think people usually teach it exactly this way. These next three skills are different than the first three. The first three really are accessing the data and they're kind of like pure access to wise mind, pure access to the data. It's really engagement with experience in different ways. These other three are not that. These other three, let me put it this way, and you may not have heard it this way if you've heard DBT before, are, these are three antidotes. These are three antidotes to problems that arise when you use, observe, describe, and participate purely. What do I mean by that? Antidote number one, non-judgmental. What is it an antidote to? It's an antidote to judgment. You start observing and describing and participating, and next thing you know, judgments are flying through your head. It's just normal, you're a human. We were made that way for some reason, and, and we just have judgments. Do we do different things with judgments? That's the key, not stamping out the presence of judgments. It's what do you do once they're in your head? So you get a judgment in your head, like the judgment, oh, that brother's mean for not coming. Um, the judgment, oh, my wife's being unfair to me, telling me that I wasn't that fully engaged. And a million other judgments, right? You, you, you're suddenly inside a judgment. And what's the problem with that? The judgment obscures your view of reality. It obscures that pure access to what's really going on. The longer you stay in judgmental mind, hanging on to your judgments or your assumptions or certain interpretations, the longer you don't come in contact with what's actually going on. And so you can't respond to what's actually going on. Mostly you respond to the fact you're having a judgment, which usually generates certain emotions and certain actions, which usually verify the judgment in the first place. And you get caught in a judgment loop. So the idea here is that not to be non-judgmental is an antidote to these things that cross the heavens between you and a pure sky. They're an antidote to the cloud of judgment. 
They're an antidote to the contaminating force of judgment in your thinking and your experience. And to be non-judgmental, it's, so if you describe it that way, it means acknowledging, it means by observing that you have a judgment. And here's what's cool. Now, once you recognize you're in a judgment, you use the first two skills as your approach to the judgment. You observe the judgment and you describe the judgment. And if you can stay with observing and describing the judgment, you start to have a sharper idea of the judgment. And you start to zero in, you put the microscope of observing and describing on the judgment itself. Sometimes that just causes the judgment to melt away a little bit. Sometimes it softens it. Sometimes it just helps you see it more clearly, but you can't stop it. You, you're, you know you're caught in a judgment, you can see the judgment, but God damn it, you're gonna stay with the judgment. You know, that happens too. That's all right. I mean, I mean, it's all right if it doesn't lead to terrible consequences, but sometimes it, it, it does, because some of these judgments are things that have been planted in your head as a three-year-old, and they're still going on, and life keeps verifying them. So it can be very hard to become non-judgmental. So what you want to do is become more mindful of your judgments, which just means you're using the skill of observe and the skill of, of describe to see the nature of your judgment. Gee, I'm noticing I have the judgment that my brother was mean. I'm noticing I have the judgment that my wife wasn't fair. I'm noticing I have the judgment that I should wanna socialize with everybody at a reception, even though that's not my style. I kinda of have a remote streak. And I'm noticing I'm judging myself about that or I'm judging other people for, for being more sociable. So there's, it just happens all the time, right? You could write down your last five judgments probably if, we stop, if I stop talking. And, and the idea in practicing non-judgmental is to be doing that, saying, oh, here I am again. Oh, there's my latest judgment. It can become a fun game. It's like Scrabble. You know, write down your latest judgment and line them up, you know, and make a, a puzzle out of it or something. The more you can do that, the more you can soften the impact and the hardness of some of the judgments. So that's non-judgmental and it's an antidote to the way that judgments contaminate pure observing, describing, and participating. What's the next one? The next skill is called one mindfully. And if you know the meaning of that skill in DBT, and I think could be helpful for anyone in life, is that skill of just participating in the present moment, and then in the next moment, and then in the next moment and then in the next moment, and you are entirely present in the moment you're in, in the thing you're doing, in the th whether it's examining your judgment or whether it's digging a garden, whether it's talking to somebody or whether you're you know, going on a walk. It's sort of like totally just doing that thing down to the level of, okay, this is the here and now, this is the present moment. And what's that an antidote for? Two things. When we're trying to make direct contact with reality, with observe and describe and participate, we run into the problem that our mind starts getting hijacked by the past. Happens all the time, right? You just think, oh, well, this is going to happen because such and such happened before. Or I can't do this because I was traumatized when I went down, took a walk down that street before. Or whatever it is, it's like, the past comes up as a competition and it takes over. And it, another way that blocks out the sun and the sky is that cloud of the past. So you've got the cloud of judgment and interpretation. Now you've got another type of cloud that obscures your contact with reality. And that's the, uh, the cloud of the past. And then there's another one, of course, you can guess this probably now, the cloud of the future is that you're, you're a, you start to notice Oh, your mind is in the future and you're reacting to the future as if it happened. Like, you get a, like I get a medical symptom. I get pain in there. And I think, oh no, I hope it's not a herniated disc. But I even tolerate that because I've been through herniated discs before. But the second I thought, oh my God, this could be my kidney. This could be a mass. This could be an infection inside my organs. I thought, uh-oh, now if I get caught in that, and I can get caught in that, I've had a, episodes, and maybe some of you have, 
caught in an episode of catastrophizing about, oh my God, oh my God, until you go to a doctor and some of the function of a doctor is to do observe and describe and bring you back in contact with the real data instead of the data of your mind, which comes from the future anticipation of a catastrophe, which then generates all kinds of anxiety. And later you say, God, I didn't need to be so anxious. Or on the other hand, I did need to be, or I, I was anxious, but it didn't do much for me. So the idea here is that there are clouds of judgment and interpretation, clouds of the past and clouds of the future. And the antidote for the past and the future is to be in the present moment again and again. And first it just means exercising awareness with observe and describe, gee, I notice I'm in the future now. Gee, I notice I'm thinking of all the negative things that could happen. Or I notice I'm getting caught by the past and what's happened before, assuming it'll have to happen again that way. All of which is, is fiction. The only thing that's real is in the present moment. And you can touch it, you can feel it, you can see it, you can listen to it, all these things. And then there's one more skill. The sixth skill is another antidote. And this is the skill of effectively being effective. And this is a really cool one because it catches a lot of other types of clouds. This is the cloud. This is a com more complicated one even than the others to explain because there's a lot of different versions. This is almost like, I don't know, a miscellaneous category. You, it's an antidote to a lot of things. Like let's say, <clears throat> Let's say I'm at this reception and I want to partake in it. I want to participate in it. I want to be willingly there. I, I know it'll be more meaningful. It'll, it'll carry with me more deeply. But it also, I, I know I don't like that kind of thing usually. I usually retreat onto the porch and talk with one person or something like that. And so I, but to do that means I'm going to leave the whole thing, including there's a sort of an evolution of this event and I'm going to miss out on the event. So I'm getting caught with something, which is the thought, God, I would prefer to be out on the porch with just one person. I mean, get one person, okay? So that starts to become my construction of how to handle that moment. What takes over that moment is a, um, a, a conditioned pattern. This could also be a pattern of somebody... Um, I won't name anybody, but there's people who face any situation and they have the same response, such as, actually, I'm great. Doesn't matter what happened. I won. I'm great. I'm invincible. I always will be and I always have been. That's a certain sort of internal bias that probably is understandable if you understand the person, but it actually colors, it contaminates accurately perceiving the reality that comes from observing and describing. So what Linehan writes when she writes about this skill is that you, this is something to do to be effective means to not get caught in having to be right, having to be great, having to be terrible, having to be any one thing. It's sort of like noticing what your biases are, having to be remote at a social gathering, having to be the center of the party at a social gathering. All of these things are biases that make you not accurately perceive reality and what the options are in reality. So when Linehan says this last skill is being effective, it means that you find what works to actually accomplish what you want. And that's not easy to define because sometimes you want more than one thing. So it's not an easy, this skill deserves more, more discussion, but it's, it's not easy to define it. Um, it. It's kind of being effective. And I think what Linehan uh, suggests when she talks about the skills is a little bit like the skill of describing the way I said you want to be as spare and as accurate with as few words as possible just describing what you've actually observed. Effective is to just be spare in determining what you want and doing what it takes to get there without so much flourish, without so much bias, without so many competing interfering priorities. If you want to get a raise at your job, figure out what are the factors that help people get raises, stay in reality. And then realize that to get a raise, you might have to do X, Y, and Z. And then decide if those are things you can do. But that's being effective, rather than just saying, I'm not, are you kidding? You have to do that to get a raise? I'm not gonna kiss ass with this boss. 
Well, kiss-ass is a way of uh, judging and interpreting a certain type of behavior, which is to uh, successfully manipulate somebody, you know, which people do all the time. And so it, it, it falls out of what's a possibility for you. So you can't be effective. You have to like carry, carry this spear to the end of the war and then stab yourself in the stomach with it. It's like a problem for you. So effective is the antidote for a variety of internal biases about how things need to be, should be, have to be, things you cling on to because that's who you are. But it ignores what actually works in reality. I mean, it gets you away from it, which follows directly from accurately reading it with observing and describing or participating, trial and error things. So, you know, it's, it's already seven o'clock. I let you get almost no uh, questions. I can say this was interactive because one person asked a question and I spoke to it, but, but we, both, we all know the truth. Um, so anyway, I hope you found this useful. I, I won't be doing one for two weeks. And then I, I think what I'll, I haven't decided fully what I'll do that because I'm going to be making a transition between mindfulness skills and, uh, and um, distress tolerance skills because it's a very natural segue and, it's, and, and you need the mindfulness skills to do distress tolerance skills. But the other thing I would ask you to think about anybody who is watching this right now, listening to this right now, or listens to this in the next week or so, if you want to write me any follow-up questions about this topic of mindfulness, which I think is just an unbelievably valuable fundamental set of skills, please do, because I also might decide to take question and answer and have dialogue with people uh, during the next one, um, you know, rather than just jump forward, because I want to make sure you're taking these and thinking of how you could apply these, not only in treatment, if, you're, if that's what you do, but in just genu generally in your life, okay? So, appreciate it, all of you who are listening, and um, look forward to the next time, okay? Okay, everybody. Adios. Ciao. Uh, Vicious.